Lord Jesus, thank you that in you there is freedom. You've come to set us free from sin, evil, shame, darkness, guilt. Lord, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for the truth in 2 Corinthians 5. That if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Lord, what a blessing it is to be able to have these truths, truths known as the gospel, the good news of what you've accomplished through your life, death, and resurrection. I pray that as we open the scripture today, as we journey through the rest of the service together, that you will give us a deeper and fresh understanding of the truths of the gospel and the importance of the gospel for our lives and how we really live in light of the gospel on a day-by-day basis. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So that song that we just sang has such a great message in it. I want to read for us some of the words. We sang, You called me from the grave by name. You called me out of all my shame. I see the old has passed away and the new has come. You know, so many people as they go through life, they're weighed down by a sense of shame and guilt. And there is a very real sense that our sin does create a barrier between us and God. But that is not how God designed us. God designed us to be in a close, intimate, life-giving relationship with him. A relationship characterized by love and joy and peace. But Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. God created them to live in relationship with him. But they did the same thing that probably any of us would do in their situation. They wanted to do things their own way rather than God's way. And so what happened is they started a chain reaction, a domino effect down through human history where every single human has ever lived since then. Billions upon billions of people have all turned away from God. Now, many people are religious. Many people even attend church and identify themselves as Christians. Yet the root of who we all are, we are idolaters, seeking our significance, seeking our identity in things other than God. But you know what? God, God is faithful, and God is gracious. He has enacted a plan down through human history to redeem us out of our sin, redeem us from our idolatries. He instituted a plan through Israel to be his special people, that they would be a light to the world. He taught them how to live in a way that would point others to him. But they failed time and time and time again. They continually were turning their backs on God, yet he was still faithful. Let me read for us a passage out of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, picking up in verse 31, God says, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So it's clear that through that Old Testament period, the Israel had broken their covenant relationship with God. But God said that he's going to create a new covenant, a covenant that cannot be broken. And to institute that new covenant, he sent Jesus into the world. Jesus was fully God, 
Yet he was also fully man. And Jesus came and he taught people that he is the king, that he is the one alone who can give true life and true joy and true peace. Yet people rejected him too. They they actually crucified him because they didn't like the things that he was claiming. And that was all still, though, a part of God's plan. Because Jesus, his death on the cross was actually a a payment for the death penalty that we deserve for our sins. Remember Jeremiah 31? I will remember their sins no more. That's why Jesus died. To pay the penalty for sin. He was our substitute. He died in our place so that we could go free. And he did not remain dead. He was resurrected three days later. And in his resurrection, he defeated sin and evil and death. And the really cool thing is that as Jesus gained victory over sin and evil and death, he would graciously pass that victory on to others, that we can share in that victory. As we sang in the song, again, just a few minutes ago, now I have the resurrection power living on the inside. Jesus, you have given us freedom. No longer bound by sin and darkness, living in the light of your goodness, you have given us freedom. And we look forward to that day when Jesus will return to set up the new heavens and the new earth once and for all. So what I just described, I mean, not only is it just a quick synopsis of the whole biblical storyline, but it's called the gospel. Gospel is a word that means good news. It's a declaration of victory, and specifically Jesus' victory over sin and evil and death, and how he shares that victory with us. So that through Jesus, we can be reconciled with God. That through Jesus, the the shame and the guilt and the sin, the idolatry, doesn't have to weigh us down any longer. That through Jesus, we can have confidence of living in heaven after our life on this earth is done. This is the gospel. And this gospel, though, like any gift, must be received. And it's to be received by faith, by trusting in Christ to pay our death penalty for sins and then submitting our lives to his rule rather than our own. Now, for the last couple of months, we've been in a series called Habits of Grace. Habits of Grace is all about practical patterns that we can implement in our lives to help us to grow in enjoying God and in glorifying God. And today we're looking at two specific habits of grace that Jesus commanded. And Jesus commanded them so that we would grow in remembering and in experiencing the gospel. I invite you to turn your Bibles to two different places this morning. First of all, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And then if you could, put a bookmark over in Luke chapter 22. Romans 6 and Luke 22. And we'll be looking at a few other passages as well, but those will be our main ones this morning. Back in the 1500s, the Protestant reformers, who are kind of our spiritual forebears, they called baptism and the Lord's Supper visible words. Visible words. I mean, right now you're hearing audible words, and you can see written words up on the screen or in your Bibles. But, but they called baptism and the Lord's Supper visible words. Because with visible words, um, you can actually see with your eyes the truths of the gospel being lived out, not just hearing with our ears. And there's something very powerful about visual aids. I think, for instance, of our Sunday school teachers here at Freedens, especially for the little children. You know what? In those Sunday school classes, they are not lectures. 
Now, there is teaching going on there, but there's not lecture. Instead, there is all kinds of activity. There is role-playing going on. They're acting out the biblical storyline. They are using props. They're using object lessons. I mean, you look at some of these pictures just from the last, most of them are from the last few weeks here at Freedens. I mean, you see up in the upper right corner, those are cotton balls in little kid's arms, signifying that Esau had very hairy arms, and that was a key part of his story. I mean, you see other pictures on the upper left. They're pretending, I think, to be camels. I mean, you see bottom right. It's kind of dark, but there's a tug of war going on there. That was just in the last week or two, representing the wrestling between Jacob and God. In the middle, you see Pete. He's showing them a pumpkin. I have no idea why. (laughs) But it's some sort of object lesson to teach some sort of spiritual truth. And so what you see here, object lessons, visual aids, acting it out. And these are all ways to help drive home the truths of the gospel. Because you know what? Words that are spoken, words that are written, are great ways to communicate the gospel. But visual words, visual aids, activities, help drive the points of the gospel home as well. And that is the role of baptism and the Lord's Supper in our lives. They are visual aids. Let's focus, first of all, on this topic of baptism. Now, baptism could be described as the gospel dramatized. It's the gospel dramatized. And one of the things that we have to understand about baptism is that that Jesus commanded it. Jesus commanded that his followers are baptized. I think of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. There were Jesus' very last words on this earth before he ascended into heaven. And he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So those were Jesus' last words. It's called the Great Commission. Now, the key action in that Great Commission is to make disciples. That's the key verb if you were to study the grammar there. Make disciples. And then baptizing and teaching are key aspects of how disciples are made. And so Jesus commanded that people are baptized. And the early church took that command very seriously. I think, for instance, of Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is preaching a sermon about Jesus to a large crowd in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 2, the application point of his sermon, he says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, so here is application point. In response to Jesus, he says, repent and be baptized. So, so it's the obedience to this call to be baptized. And we see just a couple of verses later, verse 41. So those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 people to those who believed. And so we see this, this importance of baptism. It's commanded, and this is a picture of the New Testament's package deal that happens at conversion. That you have faith in Christ, you have repentance, you have receiving the Holy Spirit, and you have baptism all going together as a package deal. I mean, you see these different actions, these different, these different aspects of conversion listed together all throughout the New Testament. 
especially in the book of Acts. That, that conversion, it, it requires faith in Christ. That is absolutely foundational. There ought to be repentance of, of turning from our own ways back to God. That, that we receive at that point the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And there is baptism as the external sign of what's going on inside of us spiritually. Now, I want to dig a bit deeper into the significance of baptism. Because, you know, it's easy to wonder, okay, what is baptism really all about? I mean, maybe, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but, but what is the significance of baptism? Well, for this, I want to turn our attention now to Romans chapter 6. I invite you to follow along as I read Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what we see in this passage is that baptism symbolizes new life through Christ. It's a symbolism of the regeneration, the, the conversion, the, the new life as the gospel is applied to a person's life, what takes place spiritually. And, and Paul starts out by saying, you know what? There, there should be a transformation that takes place. That no longer ought our lives be characterized by sin, but instead we should die to sin, being crucified with Christ, and instead live a new life in relationship with God. Yeah, we may still have sin in our lives at times, but it's not the deepest core of our identity any longer. And to, to, to illustrate that, Paul uses baptism as an analogy. Look with me to verses 3 and 4. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And so what he's saying here is that just like Jesus died and was buried... We spiritually, when we come to faith in Christ, we essentially die to our old selves. We've been crucified with Christ, and our old self is buried, just like Christ was buried in the ground. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 4 says that that we were not only buried with Christ, but we were raised. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in the newness of life. So Jesus was raised to new life. And when we come to faith in Christ through the gospel, we get raised to new life as well. Where the old is gone, the new has come. And that's what baptism pictures. Baptism is a dramatization of what happens when the gospel comes into a person's life. Here at Freedance, um, we, we baptize people. We have baptism picnic every summer. And our, our form of baptizing people is through immersion, which is very symbolic. It's very rich symbolism. And it pictures how in Christ, I mean, Jesus was alive, and then he died and was buried, and then he rose again to new life. And the action within baptism symbolizes that same type of thing, that the person was alive, but but spiritually they were dead in their sins. But then, through faith in Christ, they are crucified with Christ. Their old self dies, and, and baptism symbolizes that as they go underwater, like their old self is being buried. And then they are raised to new life. And that new life, um, it's spiritual. It begins here on this earth and then continues on into eternity. 
And that's why Paul says that we are designed that we might walk in the newness of life. Now, as far as a habit of grace goes, baptism is unique. Because these habits of grace, and we're talking about building habits in our lives, which pretty much every other habit of grace is something we do at least on a somewhat regular basis, some of them even daily. But baptism is one of those things that is really designed to be done once. Now, there are some people who are baptized again as an adult. If they were baptized as an infant, they want to get baptized as a believer, and I think that's perfectly appropriate. But the bottom line is that that baptism is not something that you do over and over and over. So how, how is baptism a habit of grace? Well, on one hand, it is an important step in following Christ. It's a way that we can grow in enjoying and glorifying God as we're obedient to his command. But when we look at, at baptism as a habit of grace, it's also a habit that we can implement to, to kind of receive God's grace in a fresh way as we view and as we experience others being baptized. Because as we are observing others being baptized, it's, it allows us to really reapply the gospel in our lives. Because as we are watching someone else being baptized, we are seeing a visual depiction of what the gospel does in a person's life. The old is gone, and the new has come. And as we watch that dramatization of the gospel right out in front of us in the water, we can reflect on God's work in our lives. We can reflect on the importance of the gospel for us. How his grace and his mercies are new every single morning. And so as we watch others being baptized, that is a habit of grace. So really going to the baptism picnic that we have every summer here at Freedens can really serve as a habit of grace for each one of us to remind ourselves of the power of the gospel. So that is a, a picture of baptism. It's a dramatization of the gospel. Now I want to move on to the Lord's Supper. Now, the baptism was the gospel dramatized. The Lord's Supper is the gospel remembered. Now, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every month here at Freedens. In fact, we are doing so this morning. It's typically the first Sunday of each month. I don't know about you, but for me, frankly, it's easy to kind of lose sight of the significance of the Lord's Supper. I mean, we know in our minds, but when you do something on a regular basis, like even every month, it's easy just to go through the motions. And it's easy to look at that little wafer, um, the wafer that, to me, is kind of, it resembles a mix between styrofoam and cardboard. And it kind of tastes the same. Um, I mean, that's, that's what its appearance is. And then you have this little tiny cup of juice. And sometimes it's like, okay, how are these really all that meaningful? I read a story about a little girl who was in a church service and they were celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper that morning and the little wafers and little cups of juice were being passed out um, among the congregation. This little girl, she leaned over to her mom and whispered, you know, the little kid whisper that's uh, quite loud still. She, She whispered quite loudly, the snack in Sunday school is much better and they give you a lot more juice. And, you know, I hear that type of thing, and, and it begs the question of what is the significance of the Lord's Supper? Why do we eat those little wafers, those little pieces of bread, drink those little cups of juice? It's certainly not to get filled up. I mean, the idea of a supper is almost kind of a misnomer if we're thinking about a meal that's going to satisfy us physically. But the Lord's Supper is designed 
to bring spiritual satisfaction, to remind us of the gospel. One of the things we have to understand about the Lord's Supper is that just like baptism, Jesus commanded it. Jesus commanded it. I invite you to flip over in your Bibles now to Luke 22. Luke 22. This is taking place at what's called the Last Supper. It's the night before Jesus was crucified. And they've had a meal together. At the end of that meal, I'm going to pick up in verse 19. It says that Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what we see here is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a command to keep doing this in remembrance of me. Jesus wants his followers, not just then, but, but even now here into the 21st century, to remember him, not just who he is as a person and not just his teaching, but specifically to remember his death. And that's the symbolism in the Lord's Supper in verse 19. He says that he gave them bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. So the bread that we eat during the Lord's Supper represents his body that is broken on the cross. Verse 20 says this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. The cup represents his blood that was shed for us on the cross. He paid the death penalty we deserve for our sins. And that opens up What's known as the New Covenant. A covenant is a committed relationship between two parties. And the New Covenant makes available for us a relationship with God through Jesus that frees us from all guilt and shame and condemnation. And on top of that, it opens, us, opens a way for us to confidently come into the presence of God. That is the New Covenant that Jesus initiated. And the Lord's Supper, as we partake in it, it reminds us of the gospel. It reminds us of the gospel. Again, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. You know, memory is so important. And memory is very deeply tied to our sense of identity. You think about how in our lives, so much of who we are, how we identify ourselves, what we think about ourselves, is based on our past, for better or worse based on the experiences we've had, the education we've had, the family in which we grew up, uh, the friends that we have had, uh, just various experiences, all kinds of things. We are in many ways the sum total of what's happened to us up to this point in life. And so our memory of what happened in the past is a big part of our identity of who we are today. And that's why for those who suffer memory loss, whether it's because of dementia or some other form of amnesia, they can really lose their sense of identity. It's really a tragic thing when that happens. I think of, of, a, of a, a boy in high school who's kind of loosely connected to our church. He's the son of one of our missionary families. Back on December 12th, he was playing soccer, and he suffered a severe concussion. And he has no memory of anything that happened in his life prior to that concussion on December 12th. I mean, it's really tragic. His memory still has not come back. I mean, he's rebuilding his life. Um, His personality is still much the same. But he can't remember his family, his friends, any experiences he's ever had, where he lived, where he goes to school. He's building all new memories now 
as of December 12th, but he has no memory of anything that came before that. I mean, it truly is tragic. And for him, I mean, thankfully, he's, he's rebuilding his life, but that sense of identity is missing something huge because he doesn't have any memory of what happened before December 12th, 2018. And for us, what Jesus is saying when he says, do this in remembrance of me, he wants to make sure that we do not have spiritual amnesia. Because it's so easy as we go through our lives to, you know, kind of know, you know, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. But it's easy to forget the importance of that as we go through our lives. We get caught up in other, seeking other things for our sense of identity and significance. That, that we get caught up at times weighed down by, by guilt and shame. Um, we, we get focused on success and making money and, and accomplishments and stuff. And all these things serve to pull our eyes off the importance of Jesus in the gospel. But Jesus and the gospel are incredibly important. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says they are of first importance. And so when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and says, do this in remembrance of me, what he's doing is giving us a practice, a habit of grace to implement in our lives to help us to constantly be reminded that our identity is in Christ because of what he has done for us through his life and especially his death and his resurrection. Now, all these topics of baptism and the Lord's Supper does raise an important topic, which is at what age should a child start partaking in the Lord's Supper or should a child be baptized? One of the important things when, when considering this topic is that to enter into a new covenant relationship with God requires personal faith. And so a person should not be baptized or should not be partaking in the Lord's Supper if they do not have personal faith in Christ regardless of their age. And so what's important when you consider the age at which a child should start partaking in these is do they have personal faith in Christ? Do they really own that faith for themselves? And so with the Lord's Supper, for instance, it is valuable to, to really consider, is this child, like if you're thinking about your own child, does my child truly have personal faith in Christ? Or are they simply regurgitating what they've heard us say or heard in Sunday school? Because regurgitating facts is not personal faith. It, may, it takes a personal commitment, a, a deep personal understanding, a choice. And so if, if you're considering, um, you know, maybe my child's old enough now, maybe my child has that personal faith in Christ to begin the Lord's Supper. We leave that to the discretion of the parents, but I would strongly advise that if you have a child who you're considering that with, you have a serious conversation with them to discern, you know what, to the best of my knowledge, have they personally received Christ as their Savior and Lord? And with baptism, really what we recommend is waiting at least till late middle school for that. Because again, it's important to really own your faith for yourself. And we find that when people wait till they're a little bit older, it helps them to, to value baptism more, to remember it more. It means more to them. And on top of that, when, when, when someone gets more in the middle school and even in the high school, that's when they have more independence, but also when they face more pressures. And that's frequently when a commitment to Christ is truly solidified. It's when they're able to choose, you know what, am I going to go this way that, that you know, my peers are going? Or am I going to follow Jesus? And so that's just a little bit of background of how we do things at Freedens. Um, but these are things not to take lightly at all. And we must remember that, that to receive the benefits of the gospel, the gospel is the best news ever, we must receive it as a gift. It doesn't do any good with the gospel to, uh, or with any other gift, just to kind of leave it there and say, oh, that's cool. You need to make use of it. 
And for me, I, I think, um, you know, today, March 3rd, is a very significant day for me because 20 years ago today is when I committed my life to Christ. Yeah, I was a sophomore in college. I'd been talking for the last week with a friend. He was talking with me about the gospel. Up to that point, I'd gone to church through much of my life. I believed in God. I thought I believed in Jesus, which meant, you know, I acknowledged that he lived and died and stuff. But, but I came to realize, you know what? I am a sinner in need of a Savior. You don't automatically just go to heaven just because. So on March 3rd, 1999, in the dorm room in college, I surrendered my life to Christ. I had no idea where, I was, where, where God was going to lead me. It's been a wild journey since then. You know what? It's important that if you have not come to that place of, of placing your personal faith in Christ, of saying, Jesus, I need you to pay my death penalty for sin. I want you to be my identity. I want to surrender my life to you. You can do that even today. It's the most important decision you can ever make. The gospel's great news. But we must receive that victory for ourselves by faith and repentance. This morning, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says that we should not do it flippantly, but instead that we should examine ourselves before partaking of the Lord's Supper, confessing any sin to God, thanking God, making sure that we are prepared for that. The Lord's Supper is designed to remind us of God's great love for us. I mean, it's kind of like, you think about a married couple. Why does a married couple still say I love you years after their wedding day? I mean, how come they don't just think, well, I said I love you back on the wedding day. Isn't that enough? It's not enough. Because you need to continually hear, I love you. And so the Lord's Supper is basically Jesus saying over and over, I love you, I love you, I love you. He's reminding us of his love for us. And so what we're going to do is take just a few minutes before we celebrate the Lord's Supper where you can examine your heart, where you can confess any sins to God, being thankful for the truth of 1 John 1, 9, where it says that if anyone confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can cling to that truth and thank God. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to have a couple of minutes just to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, and then I'll come back up and lead us in partaking of the bread and the cup. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us a new start in life. Lord, I pray that you will, through a redeeming work, a regenerative work in each of our lives, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to renew us um, in, in newness of life, free us from condemnation and guilt. Lord, I pray that you will remind us of, of our guilt in your sight um, because of our sin and our natural state. But also, Lord, I pray that we will receive the gospel by faith and that we will surrender our lives to you so that we will have that newness of life. Lord, please prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we do this in remembrance of you.